Hi, I'm Randy Kleiner. And I'm Kaylee Smith-Westbrook. As the co-founders of Series Fest, we welcome you to Breaking In, a Series Fest podcast. In 2015, Series Fest began its mission to champion and empower artists at the forefront of episodic storytelling by providing year-round opportunities for creators and industry experts to connect, collaborate, and share stories. We are thrilled to expand our mission with this podcast as we talk to working professionals in television and gain insight, advice, and hear their journey of breaking in. Today, I'm speaking with Jessica Berzyski. An accomplished writer, director, and executive producer, Jessica is a versatile storyteller working in both film and television. Jessica executive produced ABC's Flash Forward and has run television programs, including Showtime's House of Lies, starring Don Cheadle and Kristen Bell, where as executive producer, she both wrote and directed on the series. She executive produced and directed season four of Hulu's critically acclaimed Unreal, and she has directed on Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, Netflix's Lucifer, and Netflix's What If. Most recently, Jessica created and executive produced The Thing About Pam on NBC starring Renee Zellweger, and also wrote, directed, and executive produced on Netflix's Sex Life. She is also a consulting producer on the upcoming Netflix series On the Verge. Jessica joined us back at Series Fest season four when she participated on our showrunner panel and returned in season five as a jury member of our Pitchathon. Hi, Jessica. Hi, it's so nice to see you. It's so good to see you. You were actually like the last person I had lunch with before I never had another lunch meeting again because you and I had lunch and then I left to go to Toronto to film and was immersed in that for about a week and a half and then there was a shutdown. And so that was the lunch, last lunch meeting I've been on. That's so funny. That's right. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. I think I've just, the past two years have become a blur, blur. but yes, you were probably my last lunch too. Yeah. So it's, so, it's so good to see you. <laughs> we have such an LA way that we met because originally we did reconnect through Series Fest and Art of Elysium, Elysium Vandini Studios, but we originally met through a chiropractor. Our very LA chiropractor, our celebrity-laden <laughs> chiropractor, because he's the best. No, he first of all, he is the best, and he fixes me all the time. But also, I have this joke that I get more meetings out of going to him when I'm like injured because I've had I've been sitting in his office, and that's how I actually met Ben Silverman. Was I was sitting in his office, and I spent thirty minutes talking to Ben, and then you know we get introduced after we finish talking, and I'm like, oh yes, yes, exactly. hi Ben Silverman, exactly. and now he's. Propagate and Ben were just our partners for storytellers. So it's oh, so I funny. I didn't realize that's how you met him. Have, I have seen Ben Silverman in the office. Oh, yes. And um, and I do remember our chiropractor saying very nicely to me how you would just come out. This was years ago, how you'd come out to L.A. and how yeah. you were an exciting entertainment creator and I should meet you. And, you know, he just takes so much joy in putting people together. The last person he tried to put me together with was Mel Gibson. <laughs> So me and Mel Gibson. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is very LA. Yeah, it's very LA. But I didn't realize you got your start in features, not television. So you started at HBO or tell me, tell me, how did you get started in the industry? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a roundabout, certainly it's a roundabout way how I got my start, but also HBO back at the time. So I started at HBO when I was 
straight out of college. I had no idea what the entertainment business was. I didn't know what producers did or networks did or film studios. Like, um, I just was a lover. I was a writer. I was a lover of film. I had, uh, come out to New York to sort of, you know, make it big, but of course got humbled very quickly. And I ended up as a temp and then as an assistant to somebody in the HBO original movie division. And I, thank God, learned every single thing that I now know about how this business works there. And that launched me on a circuitous, but but on this path. And at the, but the tricky thing is at the time, HBO original movies were really considered movies. Like they didn't mm. function the way television functions. You didn't have a TV studio and, and network obligations. Like they made the movies like movies, even though HBO was technically a cable television network. So when I finished at HBO, uh, I left uh, a, a movie producer Dis um, who had a deal at Disney moved me out to Los Angeles in 1999. And um, Disney moved me out to Los Angeles. And that was sort of into the movie world. So I sort of used HBO um, original movies almost as like a movie springboard and then started producing movies out in Los Angeles in a few different iterations, uh, eventually on my own, eventually as an independent producer, it took a while to get there. But, um, uh, and it wasn't until I got into, um, working with Pariah, Gavin Pallone's company that I learned anything about television. Hmm. And I had to, he, he was sort of surprised. Like, I thought you worked at HBO. He had to explain to me what studios did and what, back-end definition was, all sorts of things that I had just never been exposed to in the movie side. Right. So once you got into television, was the first show you sold Flash Forward, or how did that come about? Well, I first got into television working with Gavin Pallone. So that was, uh, that was sort of like uh, just getting an education. I mean, it was a massive, very fast, very high volume education. At the time, his company Pariah was outputting tons of uh, network shows uh, under a deal with NBC and Universal, but they were all over. So I learned a lot there. I left and that was in the early 2000s. And I decided that at that point, um, I just wanted to be in business for myself. I was edging towards eventually being a writer. I had written a lot of ideas that I'd given to other writers at that point. And I was still in a place of doing that. I wasn't, you know, confident or secure enough financially and, and career-wise to just kind of go out on my own limb and, and start writing. I also loved producing and working with writers. I loved that collaborative process. So the first thing I did on my own was with an incredible writer, director, um, and really my one of my mentors in writing, Steve Conrad, and we went and made his first movie that he directed. He'd written The Weatherman and he'd written some other movies at that point. And we had developed this movie uh, called The Promotion from from a nugget into the first movie he directed. And it took a couple of years. And I had this sort of dream that like I would become involved with these really auteur writer directors and I would get to do these really exciting projects. But at the time, um, 
the Weinstein company released the movie and they dumped it and it didn't really do anything for my, for my sort of dream of, of this career. Um, although it, it did a lot for me on a, on a personal level in that I, in that I felt so satisfied by the movie. It's a really wonderful underseen movie. Um, the voice, Steve Conrad's voice is just incredible. And it stars John C. Riley and Sean William Scott and Jenna Fisher and Fred Armisen. It's like this incredible comedy cast anyway. And so, um, I was feeling kind of disillusioned when I remembered that, um, I had wanted to do flash forward as a movie. Wow. And since years earlier, um, had thought about doing it as a movie with David Goyer. And then both of us had done a ton of television at that point. And we sort of came back around to, oh my God, this isn't a movie. This is a television show. And that springboarded that process. And my first, you know, real TV show that was together with David Goyer, you know, mine and my idea. And, um, um, honestly, as much as it was like, oh, that was a TV show. I think about it all the time now. It's like, oh, that's a streaming show. It was really yeah. 10 years ahead of its time. I think it would have been an incredible hit today. It's still my favorite show that I've never gotten to see through. And, uh, it's a bit of a heartbreak that it, it came up, came undone. But, um, but that, that, as I was doing flash forward, I was like, oh my God, TV's much more where it's at. It's definitely the medium for writers and at the, and my sort of patience with this like auteur driven movie world ran out. I just, mm. you know, I had a bunch of stuff I was developing with really talented writer directors and I just couldn't get these small films going. And I thought if I can't get them going for these guys, how can I get them eventually going for myself and, um, turn, turned all my energy to TV at that point. Wow. Well, I feel like there's so many streaming services now and they're doing all these reboots. So I'm all for a flash forward reboot to find out what happened because I watched that series before uh, we even met. So, and I'm bummed too. I mean, I can't imagine how, yeah. how hard how hard it is to not be able to see it through when you're the creator. But um, that, that's so interesting that you said it's a streaming show and not a TV show. We have this conversation all the time at Series Fest about why sometimes we use episodic versus TV. And um, I don't know, we keep joking, the lines are blurring. They are, but they are so different. You know, I just finished directing a show that hasn't aired yet and um, will be new to everyone when it comes out. And the I directed uh, multiple episodes, but the first episode I directed is a direct pickup, literally the second after the episode before it ends. There's mm. a gun to someone's head and then you pick it up. And edit shooting that and editing that and approaching that in a way that you would never do in broadcast television where you're because you you don't expect that somebody has spent a week in between these two moments yeah the expectation and in, in in the way that I approached the way that the writers wrote that this was a show I didn't write so in the way that the writers wrote that moment and then I shot it and now I'm editing it it was entirely based on the idea that you would go from one episode to the other immediately. And it, and it's really brought that home for me because um, it's the most sort of conscious I've ever been of that in anything I've done so far. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned directing. How did you jump to directing when you really started as a, a writer? 
you know, I still consider myself a writer and I still first and foremost feel like that's my path. And to be honest, to me, writing is just total agony. I mean, it is just, it is, I'm just plagued with, with self-doubt and, and uh, it's such a process. And if I, if I didn't think I was a writer who had to write to fulfill my myself, um, I wouldn't do it. I would just direct because directing is much easier to me and much more, um, it's, it's, it's just so satisfying and contained and I'm not filled with the self-doubt. I'm actually filled with a lot of confidence and excitement when I'm directing. So, but the right, but the writing is really what defines me. And, um, I was writing and producing for so many years and I'll be honest, you know, starting back at HBO back in, 1992. And I was in this movie division. And part of my job, I got promoted as I was there. But part of my job in this little movie group was making director lists, we'd find exciting scripts or develop exciting ideas. And the director lists were 100% men, you know, and and or there'd be like 100% men and Agnieszka Holland. I mean, there just wasn't it just wasn't something that it felt like this very, it was felt like if somebody asked me if I wanted to be an astronaut, you know, I didn't go to film school. I didn't look and feel like everybody else who was doing this thing. And I was, you know, this young woman who was looked at a certain way at the time. And so many years later, as I was running sets and, and, uh, writing and, to be honest, once I was doing several shows over the course of doing several shows, there were times when I had to really step in when a director didn't, you know, there were, there were directors who either the cast didn't respond to or the directors shit the bed or whatever the case would be. And I would find myself often directing in, in a, in an unofficial way. And also I found myself fixing things so much and editing all the time. And I, it was this kind of hardcore education. And I had this moment when I was making House of Lies and I was in, I was so involved in, in all these aspects. And I thought to myself, I've, I realized that I had taken this option off the table for myself a long time ago for no good reason. And I thought, you know, at that point we were in several seasons into the show. I, I, absolutely knew how it got made. Um, and I thought, I want to try this and I'm, I might not be innately good at it or I might not enjoy it. That was the biggest question for me. I was, I'm really in a place in my life where I want to enjoy what I do. Um, and I thought I might not enjoy it. I might not be good at it. People might not like it, but I've got to try. And I felt like, what's the, you know, one, it was like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I'm surrounded by incredible crew, DP, writers, actors. It, um, and I had been, you know, this was a really wonderful Hollywood moment for me where Don Cheadle had begun directing on the show in season one, and it was his directorial debut. He's since gone on to be an incredible director. He did his Miles Davis movie and other things. But I remember when he was first directing and our schedule didn't really allow for him to watch a lot of playback or to, you know, he really had to be in every scene and direct every scene at the same time. And we talked a lot about how that was going to work. And he and I had a, had a great symbiosis. And I, and I remember, I don't, I don't remember saying this, but when I called Don Cheadle, when Showtime said that, that I, it, 
and, I, and I, it actually took a little bit of convincing. But when they finally agreed that I could direct on House of Lies and they said, well, we want to make sure that that Don Cheadle's supportive. Mm. And I said, well, I know he is because he's told me he is so many times, but um, I don't want to speak for him. His work, his his voice carries a lot of weight. So I'm going to talk to him one more time. Um, and so I called him up and I said, listen, do you have any concerns about me directing? It's really a moment to voice them. And um, he said to me, when I went to go direct, you said to you told me that whatever happened when I turned around, you'd be in my corner. And he said, when this is my chance to do the same thing for you. And I have your back and you're going to be great. And he really, um, you know, he really meant it. And he, and he always really did it. He was an incredible, incredible um, ally on the show. So, so for me that it was still scary when I, when I went to go do it, because of course I wanted it to, you know, I just wanted it to be great. I wanted to love it. I loved the actors so much. I wanted them to feel like they were in good hands, but it very quickly became, um, really comfortable and natural and fun. And I'm very proud of the first thing I directed. I think, I think it turned out really, that's like one of the better things I directed. So I was, it worked out well that way, but I, I really also think that like writing my, my experience as a writer made me a much better director and much more prepared as a director. And I really think my experience as a non-writing producer for so many years and all the time in editing made me a much better first time director because I was really able to cut in my head and, and, uh, and approach it with a real plan towards the storytelling that comes with editing. So, so that was how, that was the first shift. And then once I did that, I became very, um, excited to continue directing and to, to, at this point to try and keep melding my writing and my directing together. That's the, that's the most exciting idea. Wow. That's an amazing story. Um, I was like tearing up when you were talking about Don Cheadle. That's what a beautiful story. So we're talking about House of Lies and you've, as you just mentioned, you've been a non-writing producer. You've been writing. You're a director. I can see on your resume, you're an executive producer. And on this podcast, the intention, of course, was always for it to be inspirational, motivational, and also educational. So since you've done them all, I would love to hear from you the difference between a non-writing EP and also a showrunner. Who exactly is the showrunner? Who ex what exactly is the director doing? Like, tell me everything. No, it's a, it's such a great question, and it's I, it's such an unscientific answer, which I think is at its best, like the most wonderful thing about television. And then at times when it goes off the rails, which which isn't, I mean, I have to say I'm lucky it hasn't got, that hasn't been the case a lot with me or shows I've been involved with, but like that you do hear about shows that go off the rails because there are too many of these cooks, you know, and, mm. and, um, uh, and it is, and it is complicated. Like in movies, it's more straightforward. It's, it's the director takes the script and it's the director's oeuvre. Um, in television, you have different you sometimes have a very powerful writer showrunner. Sometimes you have a very powerful non-writing show showrunner, like a Ryan Murphy, who's not, or a Greg Berlanti, who's not, or a Shonda, who's not running, who's not writing the actual show and the room runner, but who's a very powerful 
visionary and name behind the show. Um, and then sometimes you have powerful directors like Ben Stiller or, you know, Matt Shackman or, you know, there, so, so there's, there's, it's not always exactly clear how it's weighted. And the, that, the big headline thing that I always really say is the job is too big for any one person. So the most ideal situation is that when you are running a show, you are surrounded with a team that can handle different aspects of it. So, you have, um, you have, and more and more now you have non-writing show, not non-writing executive producers. Um, you have sometimes producing directors now, which is a newer, um, which is a newer phenomenon. And then now you have actors who are producing. So, so you, so it's all sort of evolving. I, I'm now getting involved in something that I resisted for a long time, but where I'm coming on to supervise newer writers, there's so much volume, there's so much getting made at, at all these streamers that's, that's, um, that's with, and what the exciting thing is, it's with a lot of newer voices and more diverse voices, ideally, but some of them don't have the experience. So when a network or a streamer is handing them, you know, a $4 million an episode show times eight or 10 episodes, they are asking someone experienced to come in and supervise. Um, and that can be different levels of supervision. So I, I've been asked to attach myself where I'm the room runner and where I'm rewriting a lot. I've also been asked to supervise where I'm more just of a consigliere, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think, again, it's not like one scientific formula, but they feel out what they need. You have um, ideally, the the person with the idea and the script for the pilot becomes the showrunner. That's the most typical version. But some, so, but sometimes there's an IP that the network buys or that a non-writing showrunner has, and they attach the writer to it. So, for example, I did a pilot with um, Mark Gordon Company where they had optioned the life rights to um, a newsbooker and they were looking for a writer and I got involved and I wrote the pilot and I wrote it for Netflix. I don't think it's getting made. I think it's one of my unmade pilots, sadly, but that's an example where I became the writer showrunner with a non-writing executive producer as the originator of the idea. Mm. Um, the showrunner ideally certainly for the first couple of seasons, stays to run the room. Um, and ideally, the showrunner is the one overseeing what's happening on set to whatever degree they can. But that's where a non-writing executive producer can really help because if the showrunner's in the room breaking the season and, and the scripts, the non-writing producer can be on set ideally executing it with that sort of symbiotic vibe. When I was a non-writing producer, I always made sure to spend a lot of time in the writer's room. So I understood all the intention behind everything. So when I was on set, I could speak really confidently about what was intended by the writers in that moment. Um, so because you don't really have time to check on every single thing. Like, how funny is this meant to be? How scary is this meant to be? How angry is this person meant to be? You, you have to really be there in a supervising capacity um, 
knowing what you're talking about. And that was one of the ways that I also started to realize how much I loved a writer's room was, mm. was as a non-writing EP, spending time in the writer's room and, you know, eventually starting to get really involved in breaking story and stuff. But ideally, but, and then the showrunner would also oversee post and the editing and, and, you know, for me, and, and this has come out a lot because I also direct is like, I'll write into my scripts, the songs that I see, I'll write into my scripts. Oh, we're going to have fast cuts here. We're going to have a drone shot here. I really think about how the final cut's going to look when I'm writing. And that doesn't mean that it stays that way. It doesn't mean that it doesn't start to become its own organism and evolve. But, um, but ideally the showrunner has a vision for how it's going to be start to finish and is there to oversee it. They also often have now, um, there's also, you know, the number two and that, that person, because the job is so big, because a showrunner might be in editing for days at a time or go to set or, uh, be off writing one of the scripts, the number two has to really be able to run the room. Ideally, the number two is somebody who can also help look at cuts, look at casting, all the things that goes into it so that this very sort of weight of the world on your shoulders job isn't carried by just you. And you can talk to somebody and look at two competing auditions and say, wow, this one person's so great and yet they're 10% more this, but this other person's so great and they're 10% more that and have that conversation with somebody other than yourself. So I think that that role in the room, I think all the writers in the room are so pivotal, but having that number two is such a, is such a great asset when that, when that connection works as well. So I think there's a lot of, you know, very high level decision makers that come together, but it, it is under the, um, has to be under the umbrella of the vision of the showrunner or else if you don't have that, I think you really lose your way. Since you've had all of these different jobs, do you find now when you go onto a set that when you're not show running a show and you're just directing or writing, do you find it challenging having answering to someone else or is it kind of a blessing in a way that, that no, it's, you know? No, it's hard. And, and it's not hard from an ego place because I'm actually, I think one of the reasons that one that I think one of the things that's helped me adjust to all these different positions is that I, I just love storytelling so much and I don't have much of an ego about it. If something is exciting and it isn't my idea, I don't give a fuck. I love going into other people's universes and helping them tell the stories that that they're dreaming of. Um, and it takes a lot of pressure off of me and that I don't have to be the one dreaming up with a story from scratch. So that's that's really nice. But I will say, as a, especially as a director, I've, I've compared it to parachuting into someone's universe. And as a guest director, um, and I, and I did some guest directing in part, just because I love directing and in part, cause I'm trying to learn more and make my skill set more vast. So I've done guest directing a few times to, to satisfy all of that. And a couple of times I parachuted into a microcosm that was unbelievably amazing. Um, Lucifer is an example of that. It was the first time I'd ever directed big action and it went incredibly well. And that crew from the showrunners, um, Ildi and Joe, who they ran a set and a show and a crew with all the same 
values that I think are important. They treated people incredibly well. They represented diversity incredibly well. They were well-oiled and responsible. I mean, it was just a joy to parachute in there and then get to work with these incredible people on their crew. And I was so proud of the work. And they took the time to be supportive and and encouraging of me. I mean, it, it was just like an, a triple A plus. I've had other experiences that were not good. And it is extra frustrating when as somebody who has run a show and run a set, you look around and you're like, I know how to fix this, or I know how this could be better, or I see where they're really making some very fundamental mistakes, but you you have no authority you're playing you're playing in someone else's sandbox and that and that has been frustrating and it's and it's a reason why I probably wouldn't go on to guest direct very much more unless I really know the show or the people so you mentioned something earlier about writing that directing comes easily but writing can be challenging and you know a lot of doubts and fears and I think um I'm sure every creator listening to this can can understand that. Um, how do you work through that when you have an idea and you know you feel you're being called as a writer? What is it that you do that gets you getting those words on the page? Yeah, it's such a good question, and I and I wish I had some sort of ten step answer, and I don't. I, the biggest the biggest um, answer I have for myself at this point is just faith. And when I write something and it's I, I try not to use the word bad, but it's not good yet, let's say. And I and I really do let myself, my process is I let myself write, you know, people call it the vomit version, the bad version, whatever, whatever it would be. I, I let myself write that version as my first step. So I've come to the place where when I'm when I'm looking at it the next morning or when I'm going to bed at night and thinking about it and I'm deciding that I should quit being a writer and that I'm super untalented and that, you know, no one who has anything made has ever been as bad a writer as I've been in the last few hours. I remind myself that, um, it gets good, that it always gets good somehow, you know, degrees of varying degrees of good. And just cause something's good doesn't mean it works as a television show. I've, you know, I've written some great scenes or some great scripts that, that aren't made and, and, probably for some good reason, but, but I'm proud of them ultimately. And so I just tell myself sort of the same way I reassure myself that like, you know, if I'm hungry, I can go to McDonald's. Um, eventually the script will get good. So that, that is a voice I have to keep in my head and I have to just force it to be kind. And it's not, it's not a, it's not a clear road for me ever. Um, but, but I think, I think I, there are a few writers who don't go through this, but I think a lot of writers have to, to write something badly before they can write it well. Yeah. And that's okay. That's, that's the process. Right. Like I'm not going to eat raw, raw spaghetti for dinner. I'm going to cook it and it'll get better. So right. that's the, you know, that's the, that's the hug I give myself, but it's, it's, it's hard when you're when and especially when there's so much amazing content out there now and you look at it and you think, oh, my gosh, I I could never come up with this incredible idea, you know, and and you beat yourself up. It's 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 a, it's a it's a constant inner voice shifting to the negative and to the shifting away from the negative to the positive that like how wonderful for that person to have that great idea and 
maybe I will have a great idea like that. Maybe I won't. That's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you've had amazing ideas and great ideas, and I'm excited to see what you're working on now, next. Just thinking about what we were talking about earlier with like the streaming versus television, when you write and you come up with an idea, are you mostly pitching first before you go write it? Because it's very different, right? Are you going to go pitch a different show yeah. to NBC than you are to Netflix, I'm sure, totally. right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I almost, I've only gone out with one spec in the last several years. Since House of Lies, I've only gone out with one spec pilot. Everything I've sold has been as a pitch. And I have almost entirely concentrated on cable and streaming, but it, but it changes from time to time. Sometimes from the moment I conceive of a pitch to the moment I actually go out with the pitch that might include optioning the material, the studio making a deal with me, that kind of stuff. By the time I go out with the pitch, sometimes there are entirely new networks or streamers than there were when I first conceived of it. So I've really adapted a very go with the flow kind of attitude about who's looking for what. Mm. And um, I also really rely on my reps to tell me what the sort of ever changing temperature of all these streaming places and buyers is because um, I can't keep up. I get all this messaging. Oh, they've, they want to find a, a female this, or they want to only do sci-fi, or you, you get all this mixed messaging, and I can't, I can't function well when I'm thinking towards that messaging. So yeah. I try and stay pure with what it is I want to do and how I want to tell it, and then I rely on my reps to say, oh, well, there's three places that are looking for that now. When I finished House of Lies, I was really enamored with half-hour single camera comedy for cable and almost no one was buying it. So a lot of what I've been writing has become one hour, but, um, but there are a few places that do that, that I've tried to develop with since then. So, so, so it's things like that. And then ironically, some of the best half hour single camera now is broadcast. Like it's finished, but modern family to me is an incredible single camera half hour. And that that's obviously uh, broadcast network. So you, you know, it, it, it's so, um, it's so case by case and I, and it's an energy I try really hard not to spend. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. We were talking earlier, you just got, uh, back from t working on two different shows, right? Since we connected in September, what, what have yes. you been doing? So, What's going so on now? There's, uh, there's one I can talk about, uh, okay. which is cause it's aired. Uh, so after I saw you, I went and I directed several episodes of a show called sex life for Netflix, which on that show I had, um, come on board as a writer, executive producer, with my friend, uh, the showrunner, Stacey Rukeyser, who had done Unreal. And I met her when I was producing director of Unreal. And I'd never really gone into someone else's room before and their show before. So that was a new experience for me. You know, Stacey has come up through very, you know, the hardcore writer ranks over the years. And, mm. and so we, we come from very different angles, but she, she asked me to come on board the show. And uh, so I wrote on it. I 
executive produced it. Then I went to Toronto and I directed on it and it's aired. And I'm really happy for her because it's done incredibly well for Netflix. It's, I think, the third most watched show they've ever released. It's very juicy and very sexy and it's really resonated with people. It's very much about love and life and marriage and sex. Um, so that, so that I've done since I saw you and it's aired and we are going back to do a season two that's been announced. Very exciting. I, um, I'm not, I'm not writing on season two, but, uh, Stand by. And then I just finished another uh, directing something for Netflix. Um, I've been writing during the pandemic. I've been writing. um, And I have to say between running a room on Zoom from my home and then writing on my own from my home, I just was really going stir crazy. Mm. So I uh, was lucky enough to connect with a show that was just about to go into production. It's a very big um, comic book show for Netflix that's new. Um, it hasn't aired. It hasn't aired yet, and they brought me on for one of their first blocks to direct. And I just was thrilled to get on my feet and get out of my house and have just like just a completely different experience than I've been having ever in my life on anything. So um, I just got back from directing that. I'm editing that um, and getting back to writing. But it was really nice to be around people and and put put art on its feet for a little while and work on some crazy visual effects shots. And wow. I can't wait to I can't wait to, to be able to talk about what that project is. But but uh, it's going to be great. It'll be out sometime next year. That's amazing. How is it shooting? I mean, we're still in a pandemic and there's still a lot of protocols. How is that going back to set with all of the changes? Yeah, it's look, shooting with pandemic protocols is an adjustment. Uh, During sex life, the protocols were extremely rigorous and I had to get used to them. And I did. Um, And now I'm more accustomed to them and they feel more like they're just feels more like just parts of the ways of doing things that we're going to have to live with more or less forever. Right. Yeah. So the part, the, the, the parts that I find easy are the getting tested regularly is, is very comfortable and fine. Um, I don't mind some of the, um, separation of some of the departments so that the cross-contamination is less. But the hard parts from the biggest hard part for me directing with the COVID protocols is nobody can see my face. Mm. And it's really hard to direct actors when they can't see your face. And I started to do a lot of like thumbs up and like, okay, you you know, like, like your dorky uncle would do or something like not your dorky uncle necessarily, but like. (laughs) like a generic dorky uncle. Um, but, and, and, but even then I feel like actors who are trying to digest what you're saying, uh, it's very hard when they can't read your reaction to what they've done. And I, and, and that's, that's something that, that I don't enjoy. Um, and I miss the camaraderie. I miss the eating a snack together kind of thing. Now you have to really go off by yourself if you want to shovel a cup of noodles in your face at two in the morning to keep warm. You can't just do it standing over video village with, with the rest of your crew. So I miss that camaraderie a lot, but 
otherwise, I feel like it's very doable. I'm very in favor of the shorter hours that come with it. I think it's much healthier for the crew. Um, so, so for the most part, I think I'm used to it and it's here to stay. Yeah. On Sex Life, we weren't allowed to eat near each other because the, it was so rigorous at the time. You had to, if you wanted to have a bite of food, you had to go personally get your own food because no, no PA or anybody could touch anything and bring it to you. And then you had to go bring it to a private area where you could eat isolated from everyone else. And I, as a director, I never had time to do that. So I was super excited by the end of sex life. I'd lost like 15 <laughs> pounds, but then of course I came back into lockdown in Los Angeles and gained it all back. But, but that part was good. <laughs> That's a, a great diet. I feel like when I, whenever I'm on set, like I can't even imagine doing that. I mean, I guess I always have low blood sugar. I'm constantly, I feel like putting something in my mouth. Like I feel like I'm constantly have like a protein shake with me that I'm sipping out of. So to not be able to do that, that's... No, it's a, it's an adjustment. You And now now it's more relaxed. You're still supposed to wear your mask and you're supposed to be distant, but you don't have to go as far away. So now on this last show, I ate a lot of Starbursts. Yum. Starbursts, that sounds delicious. Whenever I'm talking to someone in a mask, it's like, oh, like... I, I'm a visual person. Like I get so much from seeing someone's expressions and to not oh, have that, especially as a director. So hard. Yeah. So hard. There was one actor about three weeks into me direct. I'd been directing her for about three weeks just now in Vancouver. And she finally said, can I just see your face? I don't know what you look like. Oh my God. That's crazy. You know? And, and I was like, yeah, of course. Plus we're both tested yeah. three times a week. Like let's look at each other's faces. But, but I also feel like it's a slippery slope. Like you can't start fudging the rules on set. You know, of course. you have to really do it. But, but, but I miss that. I miss that a lot. There was one on sex life. There was a little boy who, um, is featured a lot in the show. And on the first, when we came back after the pandemic, that his mom said he was very little, like uh, uh, somebody uh, of an age that would have a hard time acting and being on set anyway. And his mom told me he was very scared of everybody in masks. They'd yes. been in lockdown during the pan pandemic and they were just coming out to do the show, as was I. I hadn't really left my house until I left to go do the show. And we were wearing masks and then we were wearing goggles and um, plastic face coverings. And she came and she said, he's really scared of everybody in the masks, as one would be if they were a very small child yeah. who hadn't been out of the house in several months. So I did this thing where um, I had a big scene. It was my first scene with him. And I, I said to the AD, let me block and rehearse the scene with the actors. Don't bring the little boy. And we, we completely set up the scene, put it on its feet, talked about the shots with everybody. And then my AD was not thrilled with me for this. But I think in the end, it was a really smart decision. I said, I want everybody to go away. I want everybody to step off the set. And now I want you to bring me the little boy. And they brought him in. And I just sat on the floor with him. And I, I bought some stickers. And I said, do you want to put stickers on my mask? Oh. And, and do you want to put them on my plastic and on the goggles? And we just sort of sat. And I, I behind the plastic, I sort of pulled down my face mask for a second and showed him my face. I said, I want you to know this is my smile and this is what my smile looks like. And I want you to know I'm always smiling at you. You just oh. won't be able to see. I mean, I don't know how much he understood. He was very little, but he he really calmed down. And then I said, okay, now let's bring all the operators back in, the cast back in. And we started shooting the scene, but, but it was 
And I, and it worked, but it was a really big challenge in that moment. Like, how do you make a tiny child not scared of a hundred strangers whose face you can't see? It was really, um, it's unusual, you know, to, to, to be putting little young actors in that situation. Yeah. Wow. You've made me cry twice now <laughs> on, this, on this episode. It's like everyone can't see me. My mascara is uh, running. But um, that is incredible of you to take that time and to be so gentle and, and sweet. I wish there were more people like you out there in, in the industry. <laughs> it was mainly self-serving because I want, I mean, I'd love to say it's because I, I wanted to be gentle, which I did. Of course I care about, I very, I always care about child actors feelings, but it was also really, I needed to be able to shoot the scene. And if he was yeah. scared and crying, I wouldn't be able to, he had a lot to yeah. do. And Aww. so these are all kind of practical realities that are new to us, you know? Yeah. Wow. Well, the world has definitely changed and the industry has changed since we had lunch. So before we hop off, um, I have one question that I ask everyone at the end of each episode. If you could have worked on any television show in history, what would it be or have been? And what would you have done on it? Oh, oh, oh my God, what a hard question. The answer is I wish I had been a writer on Saturday Night Live. Oh, wow. Okay. It's one of the most defining shows of my life. It I've been watching it since I was a small child and I I've never I've never missed there's no episode I haven't seen. Wow. And I imagine I'm too old for it now, but I imagine being in your 20s living in New York and working on that show is unparalleled as an experience both as a human being and as a writer. Well, then I think you should go write a TV show about it. <laughs> That's my answer to you getting your dream of working on SNL. You should go write. I mean, I guess that's what kind of 30 Rock was too, right? Yeah. I love 30. I, I think 30 Rock is a is a brilliant up, up there top 10 show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I think you should just the, the think about it. I mean, your idea about me just throw, throwing it back to you. I know, but you know what? I need a new idea. I'm out of idea. I'm completely out of ideas. So not bad. There you go. <laughs> not, not, not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time and just ev- everything that you just taught us and shared. Um, I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for doing this. And thank you for keeping Series Fest alive, even through these challenging times. Because I think it's such an instrumental part of what we all need and what we're all seeing start to pay off, which is bringing newer voices to the screen. And you're and doing an incredible job helping with that and helping through all these, the, the, it's so scary. And so thanks for being a beacon. Oh, thank you. We have, we have an incredible team and it's our amazing staff and board and everyone that um, works really hard all year to, to make the festival and our year-round programming happen. So it's amazing. Um, thank you. Thank you for tuning in for today's episode. Series Fest is a nonprofit organization, and our work would not be possible without our incredible board of directors, staff, and partners who make programs like this podcast possible. 
We have ongoing competitions, initiatives, and mentorship programs year-round, so please check us out at seriesfest.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay up-to-date on announcements. This episode was edited by Neil Trulio with original music by Adam Westbrook.